Chapter 43, Part 4 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 43, Last Victory and Death of Belisarius, Death of Justinian, Part 4. About two years after the last victory of Belisarius, the emperor returned from a Thracian journey of health, or business, or devotion. Justinian was afflicted by a pain in his head, and his private entry countenanced the rumour of his death. Before the third hour of the day, the baker's shops were plundered of their bread, the houses were shut, and every citizen, with hope or terror, prepared for the impending tumult. The senators themselves, fearful and suspicious, were convened at the ninth hour, and the prefect received their commands to visit every quarter of the city, and to proclaim a general illumination for the recovery of the emperor's health. The ferment subsided, but every accident betrayed the impotence of the government and the factious temper of the people. The guards were disposed to mutiny as often as their quarters were changed, or their pay was withheld. The frequent calamities of fires and earthquakes afforded the opportunities of disorder. The disputes of the blues and the greens, of the orthodox and heretics, degenerated into bloody battles, and, in the presence of the Persian ambassador, Justinian blushed for himself and for his subjects. Capricious pardon and arbitrary punishment embittered the irksomeness and discontent of a long reign. A conspiracy was formed in the palace, and, unless we are deceived by the names of Marcellus and Sergius, the most virtuous and the most profligate of the courtiers were associated in the same designs. They had fixed the time of the execution, their rank gave them access to the royal banquet, and the black slaves were stationed in the vestibule and porticus to announce the death of the tyrant and to excite the sedition in the capital. But the indiscretion of an accomplice saved the poor remnant of the days of Justinian. The conspirators were detected and seized, with daggers hidden under their garments. Marcellus died by his own hand, and Sergius was dragged from the sanctuary. Pressed by remorse, or tempted by the hopes of safety, he accused two officers of the household of Belisarius, and torture forced them to declare that they had acted according to the secret instructions of their patron. Posterity will not hastily believe that a hero who, in the vigour of life, had disdained the fairest offers of ambition and revenge, should stoop to the murder of his prince, whom he could not long expect to survive. His followers were impatient to fly, but flight must have been supported by rebellion, and he had lived enough for nature and for glory. Belisarius appeared before the council with less fear than indignation. After forty years' service, the emperor had prejudged his guilt, and injustice was sanctified by the presence and authority of the patriarch. The life of Belisarius was graciously spared, but his fortunes were sequestered, and, from December to July, he was guarded as a prisoner in his own palace. At length his innocence was acknowledged, his freedom and honour were restored, and death, which might be hastened by resentment and grief, removed him from the world in about eight months after his deliverance. The name of Belisarius can never die. But instead of the funeral, the monuments, the statues, so justly due to his memory, I only read that his treasures, 
the spoil of the Goths and Vandals, were immediately confiscated by the emperor. Some decent portion was reserved, however, for the use of his widow, and as Antonina had much to repent, she devoted the last remains of her life and fortune to the foundation of a convent. Such is the simple and genuine narrative of the fall of Belisarius and the ingratitude of Justinian. That he was deprived of his eyes and reduced by envy to beg his bread, give a penny to Belisarius the general, is a fiction of later times, which has obtained credit, or rather favour, as a strange example of the vicissitudes of fortune. If the emperor could rejoice in the death of Belisarius, he enjoyed the base satisfaction only eight months, the last period of a reign of thirty-eight years, and a life of eighty-three years. It would be difficult to trace the character of a prince who is not the most conspicuous object of his own times, but the confessions of an enemy must be received as the safest evidence of his virtues. The resemblance of Justinian to the bastard Domitian is maliciously urged, with the acknowledgment, however, of a well-proportioned figure, a ruddy complexion, and a pleasing countenance. The emperor was easy of access, patient of hearing, courteous and affable in discourse, and a master of the angry passions which rage with such destructive violence in the breast of a despot. Procopius praises his temper to reproach him with calm and deliberate cruelty, but in the conspiracies which attacked his authority and person, a more candid judge will approve the justice or admire the clemency of Justinian. He excelled in the private virtues of chastity and temperance, but the impartial love of beauty would have been less mischievous than his conjugal tenderness for Theodora, and his abstemious diet was regulated not by the prudence of the philosopher, but the superstition of a monk. His repasts were short and frugal. On solemn fasts he contented himself with water and vegetables, and such was his strength, as well as fervor, that he frequently passed two days and as many nights without tasting any food. The measure of his sleep was not less rigorous. After the repose of a single hour, the body was awakened by the soul, and, to the astonishment of his chamberlain, Justinian walked or studied to the morning light. Such a restless application prolonged his time for the acquisition of knowledge and the dispatch of business, and he might seriously deserve the reproach of confounding, by minute and preposterous diligence, the general order of his administration. The emperor professed himself a musician and architect, a poet and philosopher, a lawyer and theologian, and if he failed in the enterprise of reconciling the Christian sects, the review of the Roman jurisprudence is a noble monument of his spirit and industry. In the government of the empire he was less wise, or less successful. The age was unfortunate, the people was oppressed and discontented. Theodora abused her power, a succession of bad ministers disgraced his judgment, and Justinian was neither beloved in his life nor regretted at his death. The love of fame was deeply implanted in his breast, but he condescended to the poor ambition of titles, honours, and contemporary praise, and while he laboured to fix the admiration, he forfeited the esteem and affection of the Romans. The design of the African and Italian wars was boldly conceived and executed, and his penetration discovered the talents of Belisarius in the camp and Narses in the palace. 
but the name of the emperor is eclipsed by the names of his victorious generals, and Belisarius still lives to upbraid the envy and ingratitude of his sovereign. The partial favor of mankind applauds the genius of a conqueror who leads and directs his subjects in the exercise of arms. The characters of Philip II and of Justinian are distinguished by the cold ambition which delights in war and declines the dangers of the field. Yet a colossal statue of bronze represented the emperor on horseback, preparing to march against the Persians in the habit and armor of Achilles. In the great square before the church of St. Sophia, this monument was raised on a brass column and a stone pedestal of seven steps, and the pillar of Theodosius, which weighed 7,400 pounds of silver, was removed from the same place by the avarice and vanity of Justinian. Future princes were more just or indulgent to his memory. The elder Andronicus, in the beginning of the 14th century, repaired and beautified his equestrian statue. Since the fall of the empire, it has been melted into cannon by the victorious Turks. I shall conclude this chapter with the comets, the earthquakes, and the plague, which astonished or afflicted the age of Justinian. 1. In the fifth year of his reign, and in the month of September, a comet was seen during twenty days in the western quarter of the heavens, and which shot its rays into the north. Eight years afterwards, while the sun was in Capricorn, another comet appeared to follow in the Sagittarius. The size was gradually increasing, the head was in the east, the tail in the west, and it remained visible above forty days. The nations, who gazed with astonishment, expected wars and calamities from their baleful influence, and these expectations were abundantly fulfilled. The astronomers dissembled their ignorance of the nature of these blazing stars, which they affected to represent as the floating meteors of the air, and few among them embraced the simple notion of Seneca and the Chaldeans, that they are only planets of a longer period and more eccentric motion. Time and science have justified the conjectures and predictions of the Roman sage. The telescope has opened new worlds to the eyes of astronomers, and, in the narrow space of history and fable, one and the same comet is already found to have revisited the earth in seven equal revolutions of five hundred and seventy-five years. The first, which ascends beyond the Christian era 1,767 years, is coeval with Ogyges, the father of Grecian antiquity, and this appearance explains the tradition which Varro has preserved, that under his reign the planet Venus changed her color, size, figure, and course, a prodigy without example either in past or succeeding ages. The second visit, in the year 1193, is darkly implied in the fable of Electra, the seventh of the Pleiades, who had been reduced to six since the time of the Trojan War. That nymph, the wife of Dardanus, was unable to support the ruin of her country. She abandoned the dances of her sister orbs, fled from the zodiac to the North Pole, and obtained, from her dishevelled locks, the name of the comet. The third period expires in the year 618, a date that exactly agrees with the tremendous comet of the Sibyl, and perhaps of Pliny, which arose in the West two generations before the reign of Cyrus. The fourth apparition, forty-four years before the birth of Christ, is of all others the most splendid and important. After the death of Caesar, a long-haired star was conspicuous to Rome and the nations, during the games which were exhibited 
by young Octavian in honor of Venus and his uncle. The vulgar opinion, that it conveyed to heaven the divine soul of the dictator, was cherished and consecrated by the piety of a statesman, while his secret superstition referred the comet to the glory of his own times. The fifth visit has been already ascribed to the fifth year of Justinian, which coincides with the 531st of the Christian era, and it may deserve notice that in this, as in the preceding instance, the comet was followed, though at a longer interval, by a remarkable paleness of the sun. The sixth return, in the year 1106, is recorded by the chronicles of Europe and China, and in the first fervor of the Crusades, the Christians and the Mohammedans might surmise, with equal reason, that it portended the destruction of the infidels. The seventh phenomenon, of 1680, was presented to the eyes of an enlightened age. The philosophy of Bale dispelled the prejudice which Milton's muse had so recently adorned that the comet, from its horrid hair, shakes pestilence and war, its road in the heavens was observed with exquisite skill by Flamsted and Cassini, and the mathematical science of Bernoulli, Newton, and Halley investigated the laws of its revolutions. At the eighth period, in the year 2355, their calculations may perhaps be verified by the astronomers in some future capital in the Siberian or American wilderness. 2. The near approach of a comet may injure or destroy the globe which we inhabit, but the changes on its surface have been hitherto produced by the actions of volcanoes and earthquakes. The nature of the soil may indicate the countries most exposed to these formidable concussions, since they are caused by subterraneous fires, and such fires are kindled by the union and fermentation of iron and sulphur but their times and effects appear to lie beyond the reach of human curiosity, and the philosopher will discreetly abstain from the prediction of earthquakes, till he has counted the drops of water that silently filtrate on the inflammable material, and measured the caverns which increase by resistance the explosion of the imprisoned air. Without assigning the cause, history will distinguish the periods in which these calamitous events have been rare or frequent, and will observe that this fever of the earth raged with uncommon violence during the reign of Justinian. Each year is marked by the repetition of earthquakes, of such duration that Constantinople has been shaken above forty days, of such extent that the shock has been communicated to the whole surface of the globe, or at least of the Roman Empire. An impulsive or vibratory motion was felt, enormous chasms were opened, huge and heavy bodies were discharged into the air, the sea alternately advanced and retreated beyond its ordinary bounds, and a mountain was torn from Libanus and cast into the waves, where it protected, as a mole, the new harbor of Botrys in Phoenicia. The stroke that agitates an anthill may crush the insect myriads in the dust, yet truth must extort confession that man has industriously labored for his own destruction. The institution of great cities, which include a nation within the limits of a wall, almost realizes the wish of Caligula that the Roman people had but one neck. 250,000 persons are said to have perished in the earthquake of Antioch, whose domestic multitudes were swelled by the conflux of strangers to the festival of the Ascension. The loss of Beritus was of a smaller account, but of much greater value. That city on the coast of Phoenicia was illustrated by the study of the civil law, 
which opened the surest road to wealth and dignity. The schools of Berytus were filled with the rising spirits of the age, and many a youth was lost in the earthquake, who might have lived to be the scourge or the guardian of his country. In these disasters, the architect becomes the enemy of mankind. The hut of a savage, or the tent of an Arab, may be thrown down without injury to the inhabitant, and the Peruvians had reason to deride the folly of their Spanish conquerors, who with so much cost and labor erected their own sepulchres. The rich marbles of a patrician are dashed on his own head, a whole people is buried under the ruins of public and private edifices, and the conflagration is kindled and propagated by the innumerable fires which are necessary for the subsistence and manufactures of a great city. Instead of the mutual sympathy which might comfort and assist the distressed, they dreadfully experience the vices and passions which are released from the fear of punishment. The tottering houses are pillaged by intrepid avarice. Revenge embraces the moment, and selects the victim, and the earth often swallows the assassin, or the ravisher, in the consummation of their crimes. Superstition involves the present danger with invisible terrors, and if the image of death may sometimes be subservient to the virtue or repentance of individuals, an affrighted people is more forcibly moved to expect the end of the world, or to deprecate with servile homage the wrath of an avenging deity. 3. Ethiopia and Egypt have been stigmatized in every age as the original source and seminary of the plague. In a damp, hot, stagnating air, this African fever is generated from the putrefaction of animal substances, and especially from the swarms of locusts, not less destructive to mankind in their death than in their lives. The fatal disease which depopulated the earth in the time of Justinian and his successors first appeared in the neighborhood of Pelusium, between the Serbonian bog and the eastern channel of the Nile. From thence, tracing as it were a double path, it spread to the east, over Syria, Persia, and the Indies, and penetrated to the west, along the coast of Africa, and over the continent of Europe. In the spring of the second year, Constantinople, during three or four months, was visited by the pestilence, and Procopius, who observed its progress and symptoms with the eyes of a physician, has emulated the skill and diligence of Thucydides in the description of the plague of Athens. The infection was sometimes announced by the visions of a distempered fancy, and the victim despaired as soon as he had heard the menace and felt the stroke of an invisible spectre. But the greater number, in their beds, in the streets, in their usual occupation, were surprised by a slight fever, so slight indeed, that neither the pulse nor the color of the patient gave any signs of the approaching danger. The same, the next, or the succeeding day, it was declared by the swelling of the glands, particularly those of the groin, of the armpits, and under the ear, and when these buboes, or tumors, were opened, they were found to contain a coal, or black substance, of the size of a lentil. If they came to a just swelling and suppuration, the patient was saved by this kind and natural discharge of the morbid humor. But if they continued hard and dry, a mortification quickly ensued, and the fifth day was commonly the term of his life. The fever was often accompanied with lethargy or delirium. The bodies of the sick were covered with black posturus or carbuncles, the symptoms of immediate death, and in the constitutions too feeble to produce an eruption. The vomiting of blood was followed by a mortification of the bowels. To pregnant women the plague was generally mortal, yet one infant was drawn alive from his dead mother, and three mothers survived the loss of their infected fetus. 
youth was the most perilous season, and the female sex was less susceptible than the male, but every rank and profession was attacked with indiscriminate rage, and many of those who escaped were deprived of the use of their speech, without being secure from a return of the disorder. The physicians of Constantinople were zealous and skilful, but their art was baffled by the various symptoms and pertinacious vehemence of the disease. The same remedies were productive of contrary effects, and the event capriciously disappointed their prognostics of death or recovery. The order of funerals and the rite of sepulchres were confounded. Those who were left without friends or servants lay unburied in the streets or in their desolate houses, and the magistrate was authorized to collect the promiscuous heaps of dead bodies, to transport them by land or water, and to inter them in deep pits beyond the precincts of the city. Their own danger, and the prospect of public distress, awakened some remorse in the minds of the most vicious of mankind. The confidence of health again revived their passions and habits. But philosophy must disdain the observation of Procopius, that the lives of such men were guarded by the peculiar favor of fortune or providence. He forgot, or perhaps he secretly recollected, that the plague had touched the person of Justinian himself, but the abstemious diet of the emperor may suggest, as in the case of Socrates, a more rational and honorable course for his recovery. During his sickness, the public consternation was expressed in the habits of the citizens, and their idleness and despondence occasioned a general scarcity in the capital of the East. Contagion is the inseparable symptom of the plague, which, by mutual respiration, is transfused from the infected persons to the lungs and stomach of those who approach them. While philosophers believe and tremble, it is singular that the existence of a real danger should have been denied by a people most prone to vain and imaginary terrors. Yet the fellow-citizens of Procopius were satisfied, by some short and partial experience, that the infection could not be gained by the closest conversation, and this persuasion might support the assiduity of friends or physicians in the care of the sick, whom inhuman prudence would have condemned to solitude and despair. But the fatal security, like the predestination of the Turks, must have aided the progress of the contagion, and those salutary precautions to which Europe is indebted for her safety were unknown to the government of Justinian. No restraints were imposed on the free and frequent intercourse of the Roman provinces. From Persia to France, the nations were mingled and infected by wars and emigrations, and the pestilential odor which lurks for years in a bale of cotton was imported, by the abuse of trade, into the most distant regions. The mode of its propagation is explained by the remark of Procopius himself, that it always spread from the sea-coast to the inland country. The most sequestered islands and mountains were successively visited. The places which had escaped the fury of its first passage were alone exposed to the contagion of the ensuing year. The winds might diffuse that subtle venom, but unless the atmosphere be previously disposed for its reception, the plague would soon expire in the cold or temperate climates of the earth. Such was the universal corruption of the air that the pestilence which burst forth in the fifteenth year of Justinian was not checked or alleviated by any difference of the seasons. 
in time its first malignity was abated and dispersed the disease alternately languished and revived but it was not till the end of a calamitous period of fifty-two years that mankind recovered their health or the air resumed its pure and salubrious quality no facts have been preserved to sustain an account or even a conjecture of the numbers that perished in this extraordinary mortality i only find that during three months five and at length ten thousand persons died each day at constantinople that many cities of the east were left vacant and that in several districts of italy the harvest and the vintage withered on the ground the triple scourge of war pestilence and famine afflicted the subjects of justinian and his reign is disgraced by the visible decrease of the human species which has never been repaired in some of the fairest countries of the globe end of chapter 43 part 4 recording by monsbru helsingfors finland